Matthew 24, we're going to probably look just at verses 1 through 14. There's so much. We're going to slow down now a little bit between 24 and 25. This morning we did verses 15 and 16 in depth. I would encourage if you weren't here that you get that study. It'll help you understand. There's a lot of um, many different interpretations about Matthew 24, 25. And um, again, it's important that you keep everything in context so that you don't get uh, all mixed up in the interpretations in that. And so here, chapter 24, verse 1 through 14, we'll look at tonight. Jesus has uh, terminated his public ministry by having pronounced the judgment of desolation over Jerusalem and that Israel would not see him again until his second coming. Um, This chapter is launched from the last section of chapter 23, verse 36 to 39, when he pronounced that judgment. This is the basis and context of the words of Jesus in the next two chapters. Matthew 24 and 25 is the fifth and the last major discourse of Jesus that involves only Israel. As she goes through the 70th week of Daniel, 69 have been fulfilled of those weeks, one week left. Daniel 9.27, Daniel 9.24 to 26 has been fulfilled. From the command of Artaxerxes, March 14, 445 B.C. to uh, April 6 of 32 A.D. when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. 69 weeks, 483 years to the date, 173,000. 880 days based on a 360 biblical year. That's what the prophecy is on. Those have been fulfilled. Now, the church and the rapture are nowhere in these two chapters. It is the tribulation, great tribulation, and the second coming. And we will point these out as we go along. It will be real evident. I make a great emphasis on that because as Calvary chapels, we taught that chapter 24 and 25 also deal with the rapture. I've changed my opinion on it because of further study. I still believe in the rapture, but I believe Matthew 24 and 25 is dealing specifically and only with Israel that goes through tribulation and great tribulation, and there will be no contradiction as we move through the context, as we'll show you this and as I mentioned this morning. The three parables deal with being faithful, ready, and accountable. The parable of the faithful and unfaithful servant, the ten virgins, and the talents. From chapter 24, verse 45, to chapter 25, verse 30. Ready for those who are on the earth, the context is second coming. It's not talking about the rapture. The tribulation and great tribulation are... Clearly indicated. 24.15, the text we did this morning, is the middle of the tribulation. 24.21, great tribulation also. So it's marked out very clearly. Now, the tribulation of those days will be horrible, such as never has been, as we'll see that. And those that use verse 40 and 42, as we mentioned this morning, for the rapture, use it out of context. That's where two will be in the field, two women will be grinding, one will be taken, the other left. But it must be interpreted back to verse 37 through 39, which speaks about the second coming. The illustration is the days of Noah. 
One will be taken, the other left. The illustration is Noah. One was taken, okay? Noah and his family allowed to go into the kingdom age. Those that are left here when he comes back. The one left is the one who is not allowed to go into the kingdom and they're left for judgment. So the illustration gives you who's left, who's gone. It's judgment. Tribulation period, the wrath of God is being poured out. You might put next to that, Revelation chapter 6 to 18, and we'll make some of those references, okay? Completely. Now, Jesus is speaking to Israel, the Jew. I can't emphasize this enough. Who will go through the period known as the day of the Lord, the pouring out of God's wrath from heaven that begins the time of wrath. The day of the Lord is in the Jewish mind. That's what they were looking for. They saw two ages, the present age, the age to come. The church is looking for the rapture. The rapture and the day of the Lord happen at the same time. When the church is removed, the day of the Lord begins. The Antichrist appears as deceiver. Israel makes a covenant with him all at one time. All right? So it happens simultaneously. No one knows when the rapture will occur. No one knows when the day of the Lord will occur. They happen at the same time. Matthew to the Jew, the day of the Lord. Luke talking to the church for the rapture. Watch and you'll be ready that you may escape all these things that will come upon the world. There's no escape clause here. The Jews go through the tribulation, deceived by the Antichrist, the 70th week of Daniel. All right? Very, very important. Now, let's begin here in chapter 24, 1 through 3. The prediction of the destruction of the temple by Jesus is given here, uh, 1 through 3. Parallel passages, Mark 13, 1 and 2, and Luke 21, 5 through 6. The departure of Jesus from the temple for the last time is recorded here in verse 1. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came up to show him the building of the temple. Jesus was in the process of leaving the temple precinct when his disciples pointed out the grandeur, the magnificence of the structure of the temple by the work of Herod the Great. Some of you again were with us in Israel, and you saw the Western Wall. You saw some of the incredible things that Herod created, incredible builder. The Temple Mountains, incredible human feet. And uh, Luke um, specifies what they were focusing on. In Luke 21, 5, he says, Then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones, and he adds, and donations. Because Luke 21, 1 through 4 speaks about the woman giving the two mites and how people were giving all their donations, okay? So that's the connection. Now, the disciples of Jesus are not named by Matthew here. Mark helps us out. He mentions their names, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Usually we find the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. Now we have one extra here along with the three, Andrew. Now, the temple was the one built by Zerubbabel, as you know, after the Babylonian captivity. Herod had enlarged the temple area, uh, a man-made platform that to the present day is the largest man-made platform. 
Incredible. And he said it on Mount Moriah. It is, it was the buildings that had been under construction that they are caught up with. They're so beautiful. But they weren't even finished yet. It had been 46 years. The Gospel of John tells us, chapter 2, verse 20. Now, the temple was faced with polished white marble, beautiful, plated with gold. And when the sun would shine upon it, would blind people. Once again, if you were with us or if you go back to Israel with us in two years, we land in Tel Aviv, we spend the night there, then we go up the Mediterranean coast, we hit Caesarea Philippi in the Mediterranean, we go up to buy Haifa, make a right, and we go to Mount Carmel, and then we end up up in the Galilee area. And the last place we always end up with is to Jerusalem. Anywhere in the land, you never go down to Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem. The Dead Sea is... 1,400 feet below sea level. When you go up to Jerusalem, you're going about another 1,000 feet above it. You are climbing about 2,800 feet or so. All right, up to Jerusalem. And when we end up in Jerusalem, and when you come across the mountains and you come out of that, that bridge in there, the tunnel, you see the city. And because it's usually by sundown that we come into Jerusalem, there is a, a law in Jerusalem that you cannot build anything in the city of Jerusalem unless you face it with Jerusalem stone or the, the stone of David, kind of a brownish, reddish thing. And all the buildings have to face their structure with that. So when the sun hits, it's a beautiful golden brown completely. Now... The architectural impressiveness is the huge stones. We've given you some slides at times from the trips. And uh, this last time I showed you one of those um, stones that are so huge. It's from the beginning of the balcony, maybe to the monitor up there a little bit more. Um, when we're standing in the rabbi tunnel through there, and we're standing on this little tunnel that's maybe about four feet wide, um, we're standing at probably 70 feet or so from the Cheesemaker Valley or the Tropian Valley, either one's the name of it, and you're looking at it about 10 feet higher. And yet, how did they get those stones up there? How did they move them? That stone is probably about the weight of four to five tanks. Amazing. You couldn't put a knife between them. They're level, they're square. Builders today can't even build a level wall. Just go home and drop a, 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 a plumb line on your corner wall. Let's see how plumb it is. <laughs> or your door jam. <laughs> Amazing. This is stone that you're talking about. 20 to 40 feet long, 50 feet, uh, some of them in length, 24 wide, 16 feet high. And they just, that's the western wall, the wailing wall. The closest point to where Jews know the holy place was beyond that on the Temple Mount. No Orthodox Jew will go up on the Temple Mount because they're afraid they will be stepping on the Holy of Holies, nor would any Orthodox Jews be allowed by the Muslims that run it. Okay? So, mutual agreement. Um, Peter, James, and John here, and Andrew, saw only the outward beauty, the impressiveness 
of man. And yet, Jesus could see the future destruction. That's why he wept over Jerusalem. That's why he lamented. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stones the prophets. How many times I wanted to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks on her wings, but you would not. So I will not force you. And since you have rejected me, I am going to reject you until my second coming. Wow. God respects your choice, ladies and gentlemen. You do not have to walk with Jesus. You do not have to love Jesus. You do not have to go to heaven. You have all the right to go to hell. And God will not force you, but he sure will plead with you to choose heaven. He will show you how much he loves you, first by his death, then by his pursuit of you continually. But it is a choice. God doesn't predestine anybody to go to hell. Not one person. Now, verse 2, the proclamation of his coming, destruction of the temple. Jesus uh, responded to his disciples, pointing out their limited sight regarding the present impressiveness of the building. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? (laughs) This was their national pride, access to God. The temple, the house of God. Jesus has declared the parable of the vineyard. The kingdom of God would be taken from the Jews and given to a nation bearing fruit to it, as well as pronounced judgment over Jerusalem, and they would not see him again. Matthew twenty-one forty-three, and I just spoke about Matthew twenty-three thirty-six to thirty-nine. So Jesus has been dealing with much opposition up to this point. He's finished his public ministry. He has now rejected Israel altogether. But you can see all the warning signs all the way. Still in two, Jesus revealed to the four disciples the extent of the future destruction by the judgment of God. Assuredly, I say to you that not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. An unimaginable declaration. They're looking at these huge things, these beautiful buildings and everything, and the disciples are so impressed. And then certainly they in their mind would say, well, God would never destroy his own house. But yet Jeremiah quoted Micah in Jeremiah 26, 6 and 18. He quoted Micah three twelve when God sent Jeremiah to the, the gate of the temple to rebuke the people because they were saying, oh, this is the temple of God. This is the city of God. God's not going to judge us. And, and, and Jeremiah says, say not the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord are these. God's going to destroy his temple and he's going to put you into captivity. Wow. Here's the same proclamation. God did it once. Jesus says he's going to do it one more time. Wow. The word assuredly is the word amen. As you know, when it's put in the beginning of the sentence, at the beginning, it means the reliability and, 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 and genuineness of the truth. It's very, very important. Very, very sometimes repeated. John uses that doubly. And it is here, the error is passive subjunctive, the strongest of the negation to express future action here. Reliable. It will happen. The judgment would be so thorough that not one stone would be left upon another. The short-term judgment of Jerusalem, the long-term will be at his second coming. Jerusalem will be under siege one more before the Lord 
returns to the second coming. Listen to Zechariah 14.2. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken. The houses rifled. The women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity. But the remnant of the people should not be cut off from the city. That's at the end of the tribulation. Now, this is verified as the destruction through Titus in 70 AD, the declaration that the temple is going to be destroyed that Jesus just said. Fire was set to the temple. It's believed that it was not purposely, but through all the um, things that were going on. And consequently, the gold of the dome inside and that on the walls melted and went down into the crevices of the huge stones. So Titus ordered the dismantling of the temple stone by stone to recover all the gold. And some of those stones you can see when you go to Jerusalem today, right under Robinson's Arch, right in the pinnacle of the temple, you just keep going north if there's debris there. And, but it's, there's a bunch of stones as they threw them off the temple mount and they're just piled there. You can see a picture of that if you go up to the coffee house on the right-hand side. You'll see them there. And so, um, not one stone upon another. Prophetic. Whatever God declares before it happens, when it happens, you know it was God. That's what prophecy is. God telling the future before it happens. The phrase there thrown down is one Greek word, and it means to demolish and to destroy. Josephus tells us that it looked like nothing had ever been built or been present on the mountain. They just leveled it. All of man's works are temporary and under God's judgment, really. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.18, For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. Nothing wrong with things, okay? Sometimes Christians get a little weird. Um, we live in a very a materialistic country and world, particularly in the United States, and we put greater emphasis on things, and even Christians can get off kilter here. Uh, we're to use uh, things and love people, but we've switched it around, and we end up loving things and using people. And so... Everything that I have, God has given to me. I'm a steward of what he gives me, and I'm to multiply and to use it for his glory in every way and not just for myself. And so we always have to keep that perspective. Uh, you got to be careful that you don't live for those things, but you got to be careful that you're not always just down on people. Well, you know, if you were really a Christian, you would give me one of your three cars. Really? There's a lot of people that are beggars in the church. There's people that need help, and you know what? God's going to take care of that through the body. It works out. If they're truly in the Lord and they're walking with the Lord, God deals with all that. But the world understands, and people who um, are lazy understand that Christians are suckers a lot of times. Okay? W.C. Fields says a sucker is born every day. And they understand that. Now, I would rather take a chance and be taken by somebody than 
to deny when there is a need. And so it's always a difficult case when you have to deal with those issues. So we ask, we need to ask God for wisdom as we live in this day. Now, in verse 3, the petition about the destruction of the temple and his return now. He says, now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So Jesus has gone out the east gate, down the Kidron Valley, across it, and up a little bit to the Mount of Olives, and he is there able to look to the temple as he's sitting down. They came privately to him. He's a, they're, they're his disciples, learners. He has said some things that have caught their curiosity. They don't understand how this can be. Because remember, who are, who are they? They're Jewish. What were they expecting? The kingdom of God to be established. For Jesus to ride into Jerusalem, knock off Rome, and set up the kingdom. Luke 19 tells us that. Now, the first question. When will these things be? Marks the destruction of the temple. That Jesus does not answer here in Matthew. Matthew does not record it. So that's better stated that Matthew does not record it. Because Luke is the one who records that. Um, the second question. What shall be the signs of your coming? Marks the coming of Christ to the earth. The second coming. The word sign there is in the singular, not the plural. The third question, what shall be the sign of, your, of the end of the age? Marking the present evil age to set up the kingdom age. And many see only two questions, taking the second and the third as one. Because his coming marks the end of the age. It's simple, okay? And... All the material has to fit into these questions. Now, since he didn't answer the first one, Luke gives us the details on that, and I'll read that to you. Then he answers, let's just take it in order, and just say this two, the second and third. He answers them in reverse order. As we go through it, we'll see this. But let me give you the information Luke gives us about the destruction of the temple. It's in Luke 21, 20 through 24. He says, when, uh, when shall these things be? In awareness to this great details by Luke, he says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that his desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, the Christians who fled, they fled to Pella. Not one Christian was killed because they fled. And he says, let those who are in the midst of her depart and let, let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant in those days that are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon the people. And, this, uh, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive to all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles. Listen. Until the time of the Gentile be fulfilled. So here, there he describes the destruction in 70 AD. 
And he says, it will be trampled under the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. In other words, Jews would not be in control of the land until the end of the tribulation period. The time of the Gentiles is the vision of Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold, arms of silver, belly of brass, legs of iron, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, legs, iron, Rome. There's the break of the church age. Then there's the toes, ten toes, iron and clay. The ten-nation confederacy joined with the Antichrist. When that ends at the end of the seven years, that's the end of the time of the Gentiles. And then the time of the kingdom is when the Jews are served by all the Gentiles. Okay? He says it right here. Do not confuse the time of the Gentiles, which is the ten toes and the stone cut not with hands, strikes the image on the ankles, and it crumbles, and the stone grows and grows is without hands is the virgin birth of Jesus, the Messiah, and he establishes the millennial. Okay? The fullness of the Gentile is the full number of people to be saved before the rapture. Romans 11, Paul makes that. Blindness in part has happened until the fullness of the Gentile come in. The fullness of the Gentile is the full number of people to be saved before the rapture happens. The time of the Gentiles is the last empire through the Antichrist, the seven years of tribulation and great tribulation. Is that clear? All right? Don't confuse them. Now, The second and third question, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age, is answered more specifically by Matthew here, but as I said, in reverse order. But in verse 6, he says, the end of the age first and the sign of his coming. Okay? Verse 8 and 14, he gives you that. All right? The Jews knew only Two ages, as we said, the present age and the age to come, the kingdom age. Keep in mind that Matthew wrote his gospel for the Jews, as we said at the beginning of the study, who will go through tribulation and great tribulation. In fact, the apostles, as Jews, were expecting the kingdom, as we said. Um, and I gave you the, the reference there of Luke 19, verse 11. In fact, after the resurrection, if you remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, the disciples, the apostles said to Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom? Even after the resurrection, they were still expecting the kingdom. He says, no, your business, don't worry about it. Just tarry in Jerusalem till you be endued with power from on high. Acts 1, 8. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Then the day of Pentecost came, they understood it. That was going to be the church age. Okay? But prior to Pentecost, they were still Jewish in mind. All the way. Now, verse 4 through 14, the description about the signs of the coming and the end of the age here is given. The parallel passages is Mark 13, verse 3 through 13, and Luke 21, verse 7 through 19. The characteristics of the tribulation period are given first in verse 4 through 8. Um, 
These verses deal with the first three and a half years of tribulation. Some see a double application to the church age, but the context is Israel. Matthew doesn't deal with that. Verse 4 and 5, the time will be one of great spiritual deception to the world. Listen carefully. He says, And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Mark says that. Luke says that also. The phrase take heed means to perceive and discern. The present active tense ongoing a very strong warning. Remember, this is the tribulation, the first three and a half years. The priority given by Jesus is the warning about being spiritually deceived. Verse 4, the word deceived means to cause to stray, to be misled. If there is no possibility, why the warning? How many of you as parents tell your child, now don't go across the street because you might get killed. And there's no possibility. You warn your children because it's a possibility. Simple. We get our word planet from this word. When planets deviate from their orbit. The deception regarding spiritual truth in context is about the sign of his coming and the end of the age. The warning about spiritual deception is the major topic throughout the New Testament. So in principle and application, yes, we should be watching WC, but the context he's speaking to the Jews for the tribulation and great tribulation. First Timothy 4, 1 through 5, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, Jude verse 3 and 4, and many, many others. Not to be deceived. Jesus and Paul and all the writers of the New Testament warn believers not to be deceived. The non-believer is deceived. You don't warn a person who is deceived about not being deceived. They're deceived. You and I were deceived before we were born again. Now that you're born again and you're not deceived and you're the truth, now Jesus, the Holy Spirit, warns you, do not let yourself be deceived. Simple. The deceivers will be many. Look at verse 5. The number will be many. Large number is the word. They will declare to be Christ, Messiah, but are false Christ, successful at their deception, for they will deceive many. Second Peter 2 says there will be many false teachers in the church, and they will deceive many. The greater deception is from within the church, not outside the church. The greatest enemy of Jesus was Judas Iscariot, one close to him. Judas Iscariot are not outside the church, they're inside the church. Simple. Now, the main deceiver is the Antichrist. Um, listen to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8 through 12. He says, And when, then the lawless one will be, um, will be uh, revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, not because God predestined them to be deceived. They rejected the love of the truth. That they might be saved. But they chose not to be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion. That they should believe the lie. That they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth. But had pleasure in unrighteousness. 
The problem is always the heart, ladies and gentlemen. Jeremiah 79. Always the heart. Jesus said that in Matthew 15 also. It's the heart. Deceitful, desperately wicked. Look at verse 6 down to 7. The time will be one of violent instability of the world in this last seventh, 70th week. And you will hear of wars and rumors of war. See that you are not troubled, for all these things will come to pass. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Notice Jesus says, you will hear wars and rumors of wars in the sense of hearing whether it be true or not, but it brings anxiety and troubles, right? The beginning of the tribulation period, the first seal is open and the Antichrist will appear on a white horse with a bow, no arrows. He conquers through diplomacy, false peace, Revelation 6, 1 and 2. What we're reading goes side by side with the book of Revelation. The second seal of the tribulation under the Antichrist, war, are represented by the red horse taking peace from the earth. Revelation 6, verse 3 and 4. God will send again, as we said, strong delusion to believe the lie because they did not believe the truth to be saved. 2 Thessalonians 2.10 It isn't God's rejection of them until they reject God first. Jesus pronounced judgment over Jerusalem only when they crossed that line of constant rejection. Then he respected and honored their choice and judgment had to fall. Jesus said, see that you are not troubled. And verse 6 there means to not be terrified, to cry out. He's talking to the Jew. Paul says, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction shall come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. First Thessalonians 5, 3. He's not talking about the church. He's talking about those who are in tribulation, in great tribulation, the day of the Lord. Jesus says in verse 6, for all these things must come to pass. These are only the beginning of Jacob's trouble of Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7. And Jesus clearly says, listen, but the end is not yet. The end is the second coming, ending the time of the Gentiles, the ten toes of iron and clay, the end of the seven years tribulation that ushers in the kingdom age. This is right now the first three and a half years beginning of sorrows. Now, the full seven years must be fulfilled. Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 9, 27. Listen to Luke. Luke 21, 24 says, And they will fall by the edge of the sword and led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. So as we saw, Luke gives the horror of the 70 AD and he says that will be the situation over the land of Israel until the end of the 70th year once again do not confuse 
the time of the Gentiles with the fullness of the Gentile for the church to be raptured. Romans eleven twenty five. There would be wars, he says, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. These indicate world wars. We have had World War One, World War Two. By the way, World War One was a war to end all wars. It didn't work. It's called the Great War. That's what it was called first, the Great War. Then after it didn't work, the second war came. They called the war to end all wars afterwards. And then here comes World War Two. I'm really surprised that we haven't had a World War Three yet. There has been a lot of close, close calls. But we haven't gotten there yet. Horrible times that we've known. Korea War, World War One, World War Two, Vietnam, many wars around the world. You have uh, Kuwait, you have Iraq, um, Afghanistan, all the things in that. And yet, as horrible as all of those are, civil war here in the United States and everything else, and, um, and yet, compared to what's going to happen during the tribulation period, Jesus says it would be better for you to die than to live in those days. Never has ever been anything like it. Never. We've had some pretty horrible times, ladies and gentlemen, in the history of man. Verse 7 at the end there to 8, the time will be one of calamities through nature and the world also. Now, and there will be famine, pestilence, and earthquakes in various places. All these are, listen, the beginning of sorrows, the first three and a half years. There will be famines. These are not natural, but supernatural by the wrath of God. The third seal brings famine, symbolized by the black horse of the apocalypse. A pair of scales in his hand as a result of war. Chapter 6, verse 5 of Revelation. Listen to verse 6 of chapter 6, Revelation. A quarter of wheat for a denarius. A denarius is a day's wages. And three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. The oil and the wine are the rich people. They never get affected. In World War I, World War II, the rich people were eating steak. They never get affected. Doesn't matter. Okay? Now, God often withholds rain to chasten his people and bring judgment. Jeremiah 3 3, Amos 4 7, and many other passages. This is God using nature to pour his wrath out upon this godless and God rejecting world during this period of time. He says there will be pestilence in verse 7. Again, these are by the outpouring of God's wrath. Revelation 6, 8. Listen. He says, Then the fourth seal brings forth the pale horse, symbolic of pestilence. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was death. And Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death and by the beast of the earth. Wow. One quarter of the earth's population will die by pestilence, sword, 
hunger, and death, Revelation 6 says. Now, the population as of July 1st today of 2018 is 6.9 billion people. If this were the case when this happens, the population at the time of the fourth seal, that means that there would be 1.725 billion people that would be dead, having left only 5.175 billion people on the earth at that time. So the fourth angel who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind in Revelation 9.15. So now we were left with 5.175 billion. One third more is 1.725 billion dead people, leaving only 3.45 or 45, almost 3.5 billion people on the earth by this point. By three plagues, one-third of mankind is killed further in Revelation 9.18. At this time, there would be 3.45, or let's just round it off, three and a half billion. One-third more would be 1.15 billion people dead, leaving only 2.3 billion. And there's others that are killed the population is going to be decreased tremendously during this period of time, ladies and gentlemen. People think it's a joke. People think that it's just myths. Well, we'll see about that. Jesus loves the world so much that he's warned the world about this horrible time. But once people have rejected God and all his love, and every attempt for him to turn them from their sin and to forgive them. And they rebelliously and hard-heartedly refuse God, then the only thing left is for judgment to fall. And yet man tries to blame God. Well, God, God, wait, 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 wait. God wants to turn you. God wants to forgive you. But you are cantankerous. You are rebellious. You are self-willed. So the consequences is punishment. You bring it on yourself. You cannot blame God. He's not going to force you to repent. He's not going to force you to go to heaven. He's not going to force you to love him. He's going to respect your will. Wow. Amazing. The fifth seal reveals those martyrs for their faith by the Antichrist in Revelation 6, 9 through 11. And they cry out, how long, how long, O oh Lord? He says, kick back. There's more of you to be killed. <laughs> Amazing. There will be earthquakes in various places, he says. The sixth seal brings a great earthquake. The sun will become black as sackcloth, the moon like blood. The stars fall on the earth, the skies recede, every mountain and island is moved out of its place and all hide on caves and on the rocks of the mountains 
saying to them to fall on them and to hide them from him who sits on the throne. And listen, from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Revelation six twelve through 17. This is God's direct wrath from his throne against an ungodly world. Not an island was found out of its sockets. Hawaii, gone. Now, I've been in some earthquakes, but not like this one. Earthquakes have been going on since the beginning of God's creation after the fall. And we are able to detect more because we have the technology also. So it's a double whammy from both ends. The seventh angel in Revelation 16, 17 through 20 Pouring out the bowl of great earthquake like no other man's history. Dividing Jerusalem into three parts. The cities of the nations fall. Babylon is punished with the cup of fierce wrath. And every island fled away. The mountains were not found. When you drive home tonight, look up to the San Gabriel Mountains. Can you imagine removing them? Gone. Sounds like something fictional, doesn't it? Hmm. It isn't. Could be a polar flip. We don't know. There's a whole theory that maybe we've had a polar flip at one time. We know that the north, the pole, there's vegetation up there, big great forests, there's carbons. That's where you get all the oil at one time. Never know. During the first three and a half years of tribulation, beginning of sorrows. The worst is yet to come. The last three and a half years, great tribulation. And so in verse 8, Jesus um, once again indicates these are not signs in and of themselves of the end, referring to the second coming, but rather all things are the beginning of sorrows. So if you look at the markers, you'll know exactly where you are in the chronological time of the seven-year tribulation. Verse 4 through 8 indicate the first three-and-a-half-year tribulation. All these are the beginning of sorrows. And I'm being very purposeful in repetition because it's hard to remember with the different markings so you understand this. Now from verse 9 to 14, you have the characteristics of the great tribulation. So from 1 to 14 as an overview, without many great details. The details I'm giving you, I'm pulling them in from the book of Revelation in that. Okay? Verse 9 through 10, the time will be one of persecution and betrayal. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. The deliverances of the Jew to persecution to the point of death for trusting Christ for my name's sake. Certainly this took place prior to the 70 AD in the first century and the principle throughout the church age and the world at various times, but the context here is great tribulation for the Jew. The context is indicated by the word then. This is a time marker indicating the specific period of the great tribulation 
against the Jew. Verse 9. The word tribulation, as you know, means to press, to crush, and is used for crushing graves and someone killed. There will be many who will come to Christ during the tribulation period. But once the Antichrist breaks the covenant, he will be relentless against the Jew and anyone who trusts Christ. So if you're left behind, don't take the mark. If you take the mark, you will be damned to hell. Now, we have credit cards. We have different things. They're only stepping stones. Ultimately, it will be the mark on your right hand and forehead. All your information. Listen, everybody's so willing to give up their privacy. They're on chat lines. They're on this. They're FaceTime. Here I am. You know, all this information is in the cloud, I'm told. Okay? When the Antichrist comes, he's going to have every detail on your life. Everything's electronic, ladies and gentlemen. Those under the fifth seal are slain. They are beheaded for their faith in Christ. The hatred is by all nations towards the Jew, believing and trusting in the name of Jesus, my name's sake. Now, this does not mean that no Gentiles will be saved or persecuted but only that Jesus is focusing and speaking to the Jew directly about the tribulation and great tribulation. Antichrist will not tolerate any rivals. Two out of three Jews will die under his hand. Zechariah 13.8. Do you understand the significance of that statement? That two of three Jews will die. Only one third will survive. Those seven years under the hand of the Antichrist. Incredible. Jesus said it would be better to die than to live in those days. The persecution will be too great for some and will apostatize, depart from Jesus. Look at verse 10. The number of them is many. Large number. They will be offended. Scandilazo. To begin to distrust and desert the one they were trusting and should have obeyed. They will betray one another to give or deliver into the hands of another. They will hate one another to detest, to pursue. All because some are trusting the name of Christ. But we already have good examples of that in history as well as our own life. The minute you became a Christian, I'm sure you lost your friends. The majority of them. Because they weren't really friends. As long as you had the booze and the party, the dope and the chicks, man, you were happening. But once you became a Christian, man, what do you do for fun? Bible study? Focus is different. The priorities are different, ladies and gentlemen. Now you're a drag. You used to be the life of the party. Wow. That's a compliment. Take that as a compliment. Verse 11 through 13, the time will be one of false prophets. Then many, will pro many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because the lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. There will be many false prophets. And they will 
successfully deceive many. Verse 11. This is also the warning through the church as we pointed out. Paul the Apostle warns the Ephesian elders how they would deceive many in Acts 20 verse 30. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 1 through 3. Many false teachers in the church as I pointed out earlier. Once again the word then is a time word indicating the specific period of the beginning of the tribulation and great tribulation. Here two prophets of God will be working on behalf of God, Elijah, and I believe it will be Enoch, and they will be giving the false prophet and the, all the other false prophets a very difficult time. They will hate them, and then God will allow them to be killed. In Revelation eleven three through 13, they will lie in the streets of Jerusalem for three days, and then people will be partying, sending gifts. Everybody will see them, and then the voice from heaven will say, get up, rise up. And he, they will rise up on their feet and ascend to the heavens and the people will freak out. But it's not going to stop. Amazing. Amazing. This will be a time of lawless character, giving way to the treacherous betrayal as the love of many, Jesus says, grows cold in verse 12. The word love there, listen carefully, is the word agape. It's not phileo emotional. It's not eros sexual. It is agape. Only Christians have agape love. All right? Very important observation. It's used of God's love thoroughly and through for the believer, never the non-believer. Again, many will come to Christ through the preaching of the 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each tribe. They're not Jehovah Witness. Um, the two witnesses that I mentioned, Enoch and Pri. Um, Elijah and Enoch for sure because they haven't died physically and there may be others this is the perseverance of those in the great tribulation in your patience possess you your soul Luke 21 19 says the sharp contrast is to those who endure to the end they shall be saved verse 13 says underline that this is the application and principle throughout the church age, but the context, again, is great tribulation. Okay? The word but marks the sharp contrast to those who do not endure and abound to the end. The word endure simply means to remain, to abide, not to recede or flee. Simple. Okay? The non-believer is apart from God. This would not be a warning to non-believers. They belong to Satan. They are lost. They are deceived. All right? Look at 14. The time will be one of the proclamation of the gospel to the entire age. And that's why I say it's an overview without the details because he ends up here at the end of the tribulation. And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then, then the end will come. Not until then. Now this was one of the motivations after World War II. Let's get on mission field and let's preach the gospel throughout the nation. It brought about a great mission field. The motive was right, but the context is wrong. The church will never accomplish it. More people know about Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola than Jesus Christ. The knowledge of Jesus Christ and the gospel is diminishing in the world, not increasing. Just take our nation. For the first time, people in our nation... Do not know about Jesus Christ. Wow, what a shocker. Nations of the world are sending missionaries to the United States. Pretty shocking. 
the preaching of the gospel to all the world will never be fulfilled by the church, but by the angel. Revelation 14, 6 through 13. The word then, again, a time word. Listen to verse 6 through 7 uh, of Revelation uh, 14 there. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. The priest to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the seas, the springs, and the waters. That's when it's fulfilled, ladies and gentlemen, not before. Israel failed. The church has failed. God will have to take care of it through his angels. The 144,000 Jews are sealed. They will preach. The two witnesses will preach. Those who accept Christ will preach. The word then again appears. Then the end will come, the second coming to set up the kingdom. Jesus has run through the entire seven years in a kind of overview without giving many of the details in these opening verses 4 through 14. The details I've given to you, I've pulled from Revelation and other places. All right? And so we will pick up next Sunday night with verse 15, and we'll see how far we get. Lord, thank you for your love, your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. We thank you for just your goodness to us, Lord. And we pray that you continue to raise up godly men and women to serve you. We pray for that your spirit would be poured out in the midst of us here in Pasadena, Lord. It is such a desert spiritually. So many of the churches are so culturally relative, Lord, and are so politically correct. We pray that you would pour out your spirit and bring people to their knees as they call upon your name. Use us, Lord, for your glory. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Maybe you're over the internet or the radio. Then call on the name of the Lord. He loves you. He died for you. You're a sinner. Sin separates you from God. And it condemns you. It accuses you. Yet he died for your sins that you might call upon him and they could forgive you and make you a child of God by grace through faith. If this is your desire, it's the grace of God to turn on that light and allow you to understand that good news and the conviction of your own guilt and the need of forgiveness. If such is the case, this is your prayer to the Lord that he may save you. And he's going to do that right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. Lord, I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name. Amen.